his family and the uh, message that he has for us, and also pray for our offering today. In Jesus' name, amen. And thank you, Gabe. And good morning again. Um, uh, this last Tuesday, I drove to Casper, and uh, I picked up my friend Lacan. Um, as you know, Lacan and Becky um, left on Thursday to head for Arkansas. He had already been there and um, needed to come back and get the moving truck. And so um, it was good for me to be able to hang out with my friend there for the last couple hours, probably for some time. Um, on the way back, Lacan and I spent a lot of time talking, and he told me the story of a man that he met uh, in Arkansas that works at the hospital where he's at. He might be a doctor, I think, but I don't know that. Um, but the guy was from Kenya, and so um, you know, there's some kinship, I think, in the idea that you know, Lacan's from Nigeria, and to be able to meet someone from Kenya was good. But this man told Lacan a story. Uh, this man was a Muslim and became a Christian, and he expressed uh, the things that caused that to happen, the things that God used to bring him to faith. And the first thing he said was that the Christian understanding of God as Father, as Abba, as Daddy, that that made a huge impact in his life. And so let me just pause real quick and say Happy Father's Day to you dads out there. Happy Father's Day to you. Uh, we recognize that some of you out there may not have had a father, or perhaps you had a difficult father. But thankfully, we all have a heavenly father that loves you tremendously and has chosen you to, uh, to be a part of the faith that is merciful and gracious towards you. But happy Father's Day. Uh, as I was talking with Lacan, this Abba, Daddy, Father concept was very different than the Islamic understanding of Allah. And this spoke volumes to Lacan's Kenyan friend. The second thing that he said that made a huge impact um, on him and drew him out of the, the apostasy that is Islam and into faith in Jesus Christ was this, the love that Christians have for each other. He said it was unbelievable. In fact, when, when he became a Christian, a group of Muslims circled him and one said, I should cut your head off. And then another one leaned in and stabbed him. And the way that he responded, he was taken to the hospital, but the way that he responded ended up drawing one of that group to faith because he responded in love. And of course, John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And this morning, we'll be talking about the love that we are called to have for each other through the bond of unity. July 4th, 1776, you may know that day. It may sound familiar to you. I'm not talking about Independence Day, although I am. When Congress declared independence, they also created a committee to come up with a slogan and a seal for this new country. 
And the next month, the committee suggested the motto that you see on the screen and you find on your money, E Pluribus Unum, which translated me, uh, which when translated means out of many, one. And it provides a beautiful picture uh, for, the new, for this new nation of these 13 independent colonies, very distinct, separate from each other, coming together to form a new nation. And we will celebrate that new nation, of course, in less than a month here. But as Americans soon found out and still know today, that unity has proven elusive. Unfortunately, unity can be elusive in God's church as well. We fight over names, we fight over signs, we fight over paint colors, we fight over all kinds of things. A church I went to in Santa Maria um, dropped, or there was a discussion, we didn't even do it, but there was a discussion about dropping the word Baptist from the name, not changing the theology or the doctrine of the church, just dropping the word baptism. And there was incredible anger at this. At the committee meeting where they talked about it, people were yelling at each other. A friend of mine from a Baptist church in Burbank said that they went to change their sign. They went to change their sign. Now, I want to point out here, they weren't changing their name. They weren't changing their doctrine. They weren't doing any of that. They just had an old sign that was breaking down. It had been there for a couple of decades. And so they decided... They needed to change the sign. And so they had a church meeting at the business meeting, uh, and they mentioned that, and it got to the point where people were throwing hymnals at each other over changing a sign. In August, we'll be painting in here. We'll be changing the color in here. Thankfully, we've removed all of the hymnals already. So, uh, But as you know... As you know, COVID, recent political events, these things have taken a heavy toll on church unity throughout this country over the last few years. Increasingly, the church is under attack from the outside culture. The largest evangelical conference in America is right now in the throes of division. A uh, very famous pastor on the East Coast, uh, the, the, there's a, a rebel group in the church who is suing the church in court uh, because they don't like the, how elders were chosen. They don't think the Constitution was followed. Unity. Unity. We need to come together within our church in unity. And I want to say this. This has, we're not... Uh, this is not to say in any way that truth doesn't matter, that doctrine doesn't matter. We make every attempt to stand firmly on sound doctrine. And we can have important discussions on second tier and third tier issues. I would love to discuss how many petals are on your Calvinist tulip. But those are not things that should be dividing us as a church there are things for which there is room for disagreement, but not for disunity. And so this morning, 
we're going to look at Paul's call for us to be united as a church body. And so you can turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 4. I'd like to give you some context before we read the passage, because I think it's really important. Paul says in chapters 1 and 2, he tells you who you are in Jesus Christ. Who you are in Christ. He says we are blessed, we are chosen, we are adopted into God's family in chapter 1. He says we're redeemed and our sins are forgiven. We've been lavished with the riches of God's grace. We have obtained an inheritance that is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit that has been sent to us. We have been made alive. Towards the end of chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul tells us that the barriers between Jews and Gentiles have been broken down. And he says, we are no longer strangers and aliens to the covenant, but we are fellow citizens. And then in chapter 3, Paul prays for strength, that the Ephesians would be strengthened, rooted in the love of Christ, and that they would be filled with the fullness of God. And so we come to our text this morning, chapter 4, which begins the second half of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, if you would please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You may be seated. So here in chapter 4, what Paul does, he, trans, he transitions now in his discussion, in his letter to the church in Ephesus, he transitions to those things that they are obligated, expected, and required to do. He transitions away from the doctrinal truths now to how we as believers should respond. And he's done this with the idea that we would remember this is what God has done for you. This is now what you should do. Paul says, therefore, he starts out verse 1, therefore. Therefore, because of the doctrinal truths about where you stand in light of God's immeasurable mercy and his grace, because God took you who were dead and made you alive. He says this in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So because you were dead and God made you alive, because Christ erased the barriers that rendered you, and he says this in verse 12, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel 
strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And then in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then in verse 19, so you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Paul says, therefore, therefore, because God, as Paul says in the letter to the Philippian church, rescued, therefore, because God rescued you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son, Paul says in our text this morning that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so then Paul fleshes that out over the next three chapters. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 tell us what that should look like in our lives. It tells us what godly living looks like. It tells us what godly relationships between parents and their children between a husband and their wife. But Paul starts this section with these words about unity. You know, we talk a lot about gospel truth, right? We talk about truth. And I hear this all the time. Well, unity and truth, Kevin. Unity and truth. Truth matters. Yes, truth matters. Truth absolutely matters. And one of the truths that matter is unity. It is fascinating to me that we ignore that apart from the essential, the essential doctrines of Jesus Christ, unity in, in the church is one of the greatest truths and commands preached throughout Scripture. Over and over and over again, unity is preached in Scripture. The role of women in church is not preached anywhere near the extent to which unity Unity is preached in Scripture. But man, we churches will break up quickly over that topic. Unity is preached over and over. And we believe, trust me, we want to stand on doctrinal truths. There's no doubt about that. But unity is a priceless command that we are given and we are enabled by the Holy Spirit to accomplish So Paul does this often. He starts with, like he does here in Ephesians, the first three chapters, doctrinal truth, and then practical application. He does it, for example, in Romans 12. After 11 chapters of gospel truth, where Paul explains the gospel of Jesus Christ, we come here to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, disunited. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul says, be a living sacrifice. Don't crawl off the altar, as Sam has, has often said. Be a living sacrifice. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. 
And we'll come back to this. If you turn to it, put a finger in there, we'll come back to it. Because guess what? Paul talks about unity here also. And we look at Galatians. In Galatians, Paul sets out the doctrinal truth that we are not saved by the works of the law. Rather, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he transitions in Galatians 5, verse 16. He says, walk by the Spirit. In verse 18, he says, be led by the Spirit. And in verse 25, live by the Spirit. And guess what Paul talks about after this? Unity. And then, of course, we see the same pattern pattern in Colossians. In Colossians, Paul gives the doctrinal truth of Christ's preeminence and our sufficiency, the, the sufficiency of Christ for our salvation. And you guessed it. He starts with applying this. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. You want to know what Paul talks about in this next section? Unity. So again, we see this pattern Doctrinal truth followed by practical application. In every case, in every case, we see unity as key. And by the way, generally first in the application of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would argue that perhaps we're to be more committed to unity. Really important if Paul continues to stress it over and over. And so we come to verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Don't let the word urge, like it's a suggestion, here mislead you. The Greek word for, that's translated urge here is parakaleo. It means literally to call you to one side. It is to ask you to do something in an earnest fashion, to beg or to plead. I think of when my dad would call me over and he'd put his arm around me and he would strongly urge me to do what my mother was telling me to do. <laughs> this was a strong plea. Obey or else. That's how we should be translating this word urge. It's a very strong word. Paul calls believers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. He says in Romans 12, Prevent, or present yourself as a living sacrifice. In Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit. In Colossians 3, set your mind on things above. These are all written in the present tense, which indicates a continuous action on our part. We're to continually be doing it, and they carry the weight of commands. Walk, present, set. Walk implies a pilgrimage. It's what disciples do. They follow. They follow their master. Well, how should we walk? How should we walk? Walk in a way, Paul says in verse 3, eager 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's how we should walk. My first suggestion to you would be to follow the example of Paul. Follow the example of Paul. We see here in verse 1 that Paul is in prison. Do you remember why? Paul was in prison because he preached a message of unity between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Jews in Jerusalem were fired up about this. So why is Paul in prison? Because he preached a message of unity. We don't like to hear that, do we? Because it means maybe we have to check ourselves. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is dealing with the problem that is created in the Corinthian church by food being offered to idols. You may remember this. Of course, you'll remember the beginning of it. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We tend to stop there, right? But let's read on. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to what? Please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And then what does he say? Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And you may remember, of course, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the beginning of that letter to a... And by the way, um, Paul's pretty sarcastic in this letter. You, You ought to, if you get a chance, read it from that perspective. Paul is fired up at the Corinthian church. So he says this. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree... And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. That there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Cephas. I'm sorry, Apollos, or I follow Cephas. I follow John MacArthur. I follow Jack Hibbs. He didn't add those last two. But you could hear that today, especially with YouTube. Or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And get this, things are so bad in Corinth that Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. We should follow Paul's example in unity. Or we could perhaps follow the example of Christ in unity. Jesus, or Paul tells us about Jesus here. He says, so if, and I put because up there because it's better translated. If is better translated as because. It's a conditional statement. A lot of stuff in the Greek there. I don't want to bore you um, more than we already are. But um, so because there is any encouragement in Christ. Are you encouraged by Christ? 
Because there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What is Paul talking about here? Unity. Paul is talking about unity. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Think about this. Imagine if we all did this. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And here's where Paul says, follow Christ. Do what Christ does. Continuing in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I'm gonna, just going to be honest with you. I have a hard time even reading this passage. It just absolutely grips my heart. When you stop and you ponder the meaning of this, the reality, the truth in this passage... Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of man. God became what he created for you and for me. How's that for humility? How's that for humility? How's that for putting others before yourself? Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Followed the example of Christ in unity. And so how do we obtain unity? Well, Paul gives us some virtues here that we can follow in verses 2 and 3. He says to walk, walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word humility, there's no Greek word for it. They, they only had a word for the opposite, for pride. I just want you to think about that. This is the language that is the most broad and colorful language. I mean, think about how many words there are for the word love. Right? Eros, phileo, agape, just to name the first three off the top of my head. And they had no word for humility. Paul had to combine words. He combined the word for lowliness uh, with, with the word for understand or to think. And it means to judge yourself low. It is contrasted by pride. And we pride ourselves in many things. Paul says, judge yourself lowly. We see this concept in Romans 12, verse 3, where Paul tells the Roman church to not think of themselves, listen, more highly than they ought to, but rather think with sober judgment. Why do we always view ourselves with pride? What is there to take pride in? You know your heart. What is there to take pride in? Ephesians 2 says you were dead. Dead means dead. 
dead in your trespasses, apart from faith in Christ, and that faith is even given to us by God. We see it in Philippians 2, verse 3. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And Paul says, this is what Christ did. Though God, Christ, took on the form of a servant, and he humbled himself and obediently took the cross for you and for me. What's Paul's point? How dare we not do this? How dare we not do this? Christ did it for us in humility. Count others more, more significant or more important than yourself. And then Paul says, be gentle. Be gentle. The Greek word, praites, refers to self By the way, I looked that up and I have a little speaker button. No clue how to say that. Uh, it refers to self-control. We understand what this word means. Here's why. It was used to describe wild animals that were tamed. It was used specifically of horses. The broken and trained horse retains its strength, but it submits to the will of the master. We get that in Wyoming, don't we? That's what the word gentleness means. It is to set aside your rights for the benefit of others. Jesus Christ had rights, didn't he? He was God. Is God. And he set aside who he was in the moment for your benefit. When others want to fight, the gentle spirit chooses not to. Be gentle with other believers. Paul says, be patient. The Greek word is macrothumia. You know the word macro. I used to teach macroeconomics. It means large, right? Big. On a big scope. Macrothumia. Be long-tempered or long-suffering. Again, follow the example of patience shown to us. We know in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, that God identified himself to Moses as being slow to what? Anger. In James 5, James tells us to follow the example of the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah who preached over and over and over faithfully to the people of Israel who ignored them. Be patient. Be patient. Jesus has been patient with you, I assume. He's certainly been patient with me. And Jesus was patient demonstrated tremendous patience with those that mocked and scourged him just to show you mercy. Be patient. Be humble. Be gentle. And then Paul says, bear with one another in love. 1 Peter 4.8 Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Hatred stirs up strife, according to Proverbs 10. What strife? Division, disunity. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Brothers and sisters, love the church. The church, by that I mean all of us, right? Those of us that make up the church. Love the church to promote unity. We see the same thing in Romans 12. 
Romans 12, verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly. Think with sober judgment about yourself. In verses 9 and 10, let love be genuine. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Imagine if we did that. If we were tripping over each other to show each other honor. Imagine what that would do in our church. Outdo one another in showing honor. In verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We see it in Galatians 5. Galatians 5 is fascinating. Paul goes through the works of the flesh. Eight of those 15 works of the flesh are things that are disunifying. Look at the list. Look at the ones that I've underlined. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissension, division, envy. These things get in the way of unity. Look at the admonition that Paul gives that I put in italics there at the bottom. We should maybe think about this. That those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We are called to unity. In fact, right after this, Paul then goes to the fruit of the Spirit. And look at the things in the fruit of the Spirit. And as I read it, ask yourself, do these promote unity? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What's Paul's point here? It's pretty simple. Be united. Be united. These are things that promote unity. Colossians chapter 3, verse 6, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Again, look for disunity here. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you, were, or seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Now look for unity, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave free, but Christ is all and in all. Unity. Put away the things that are disunifying. Commit to unity. And he continues, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, unifying, kindness, unifying, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving. That might be unifying each other. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive and above all else put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony unity and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one unified one body and be thankful and so Paul here talking about the unity of the spirit says we are called to be eager to maintain the unity 
of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are called to the oneness of the faith. Paul says in Ephesians 4, verses 4 to 6, there's one body. This is the church with Christ as the head. One Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which led you to salvation and empowers us to be committed to each other in unity. One hope, which is our salvation. One Lord Jesus Christ, one faith, which is the doctrines, the gospel that has been handed down to us according to Jude 3. One baptism, which is our testimony of our confession of one hope brought about by one faith in one Lord through the work of one Spirit. And then Paul says, one God and Father of all, stressing the unity and the oneness of the triune God. We are called to unity as the Trinity is united. Like, let that sink in for a second. We are called to unity as the Trinity is, you, is united. Finishing here, let me just say a last couple of things. Jesus believed this to be very important. If you have your Bibles, turn quickly to John 17. John 17. Your Bible may title this section, The High Priestly Prayer. This is the, these are the last words that Jesus spoke before he was arrested, which then began the passion of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what he spoke about. This is what he prayed for. He says in verse 20, I do not ask for these, talking about his disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. That's me. That what? That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may what? Believe. Why are we called to unity? So that the world may believe. That the world may believe that you have sent me the glory that you have given me. I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me. That they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you love me. We are to be united so that the world may believe, so that the world may know that the Father sent the Son. In Ephesians 4, verse 12, Paul continues, and he says it's for the building of the body of Christ. And in verse 16, that each part working properly makes the body grow so that it is built. We are called to unity so that we may be a testimony for Christ in the world. Finally, a word of caution. Before we act in a way that may be disunifying, because it's pretty clear in Scripture, you are called to unity. Before we act in a way that may be disunifying, we should remember this repeated call from both our Savior and from Paul. And so here's some questions to ask yourself. If you're frustrated about something and you're trying to figure out how to deal with it, am I acting in humility? Am I acting in gentleness and patience and love? Am I representing the fruit of the Spirit? Am I seeking to build the body? 
If it's a doctrinal issue, am I majoring in the minors? Are these primary issues of sound doctrine dealing with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Almost always, by the way, you know, we say unity and truth. You know, almost always in Scripture when it talks about truth, we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not talking about other, what we might call more minor doctrines, second and third tier issues. We're talking about the gospel of Christ. That's what unites us. So are the things that you're concerned about, are they of secondary importance? That's where denominations split. Or is it a third tier issue that's a matter of conscience or perhaps an applicational difference? Last thing here, an obscure 17th century German theologian was writing about the Thirty Years' War. By the way, do you know what the Thirty Years' War was about? It was about a religious war. How's that for unity? The Thirty Years' War, and he said this, and I think it can guide us when we have doctrinal concerns. He said, in essentials, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. Throughout the New Testament, we're called to unity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we make a concerted effort here at First Baptist to promote fellowship among believers, to promote a sense of community, Father, we can't get there apart from you, apart from the work of Jesus Christ. Father, you are key to unity. Our salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ the work of the Holy Spirit in our heart, those things promote unity. Father, help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, worthy of salvation, and help us to do so in a unified way. Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. You are dismissed. Thank you.